expression, which uses your face, beautiful questions and conversation, which uses your voice. In my stroke, I had neither of those things. When the thing that makes us us is no longer available to us, who are we? Uh, we have lots of instruction about ambition. We have lots of instruction about organization. We have lots of instruction about productivity. Um, but we have very little instruction about how does one renew oneself. Today, I am uh, sitting with a gentleman named Keith Yamashita, uh, who you will get to know in many ways over our next little bit of time together. The basic premise of this show is a conversation about conversations. Um, I have become even more convinced since Seth Godin uh, left us off last time um, that conversations are the way we change our lives uh, more than anything else for the good or the bad. Uh, and, and as I said, Keith's got some uh, stories around conversations, but let me get right to this point about what I saw in 2012 and all the things you've done since then. You're obviously uh, perceptually an inordinately talented uh, communicator and presenter, and I wanted to start with you know, where that comes from. So I'm in fourth grade, and uh, first day of class, and my teacher comes in and she writes her name on the board, Anita Shrigley, in this kind of uh, cursive letters, which really looks, you know, in fourth grade looks like hieroglyphics, right? You really right. can't read it. And she says, you know, we are going to start a ritual in our class, which is uh, every Friday we are going to spend the whole morning and you're going to pick a topic out of a hat and I'm going to give you three minutes to prepare and then you have to give a three-minute speech. And, of course, when you start this as a fourth grader, it's terrifying. You know, you sit there and you get, uh, you know, elephants, go, three minutes. Dinosaurs, go, three minutes. Lincoln, go, three minutes. And um, what I learned really early on is that the worst thing that would happen, the very worst thing that would happen, is that you would be in silence for three minutes. And once you figure out that the worst thing that could happen is you'd be in silence everything else becomes really, really easy. And so after that first year, we did it every single Friday of every single week, of every single month. And um, what resulted was a class full of fourth graders who have no fear of standing in front of other people naked with only your ideas. And um, I would say that was the start of what has made me, me mm. um, from the very beginning. So grateful for, for Anita Shrigley for everything she did in fourth grade. Right, right, right. What a good story. Um, well, let me then fast forward um, to a story that you're not in for a second to explain uh, the setup for the next question. Uh, about three weeks ago, I finished up a class which some folks know that I teach at Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles, and I teach a class called Collaborative Communication. Uh, a friend of mine came and spoke, and I have a rabbi come, and then a, a high-ranking, if you will, Jewish professional comes and talks about their, their work to inspire the students. A student gave an assessment of the, the woman who joined us as a speaker, saying that it was the, one of the best presentations she had ever, he had ever seen. And I said, well, what was it? And I wrote down the quote. Said, she used storytelling 
to express what matters to her and the values at the root of her decision-making. And he noted personally to me that she never told us what she did. So here is your challenge for the next question. Can you explain to the uh, listeners um, what uh, a story that exemplifies what you do without telling people what you do as a title or a position? Hmm. You know, almost everything in the world is in a transformation from one state to another, right? So a flower goes from a bud to a flower, a tree goes from a seed to a majorly strong tree, a human being goes from an infant to adult. And um, it's this journey of transformation. How do you go from one state to another, true to the thing that you're supposed to be? and true to the thing that you're trying to become. And um, my passion in the world is to help that happen for people and for organizations and for social movements. It's this, how can you evolve in a way that's true to who you are um, and captures the promise of who you're becoming? Got it. Got it. And your career is um, marked by stories, right? I mean, of interactions stories are the that. ritual. Um, stories are the thing that connects us as human beings as we transform from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. You know, as human beings evolve, our narrative about ourself and our stories and what we mean. Um, conversation between two of us can help us determine what we might want to do together. Mm-hmm. An organization story or narrative binds people together in common mission. Mm-hmm. Um, this works at the national level. I, w- I would say, obviously, the American narrative right now is very splintered, and in you know thousands and thousands of different stories, rather than an overarching, unifying American story mm-hmm. right now. So, narrative is the thing that creates the container in which we can evolve. And it creates the, the place in which we can do our work of becoming a better human being. And so how we think about narrative, how we enact narrative, how we connect in conversation around narrative becomes really prime to who we are as people. Mm. Got it. So a, a little bit more than about, if you don't mind, about the places where you've done this narrative building. When you do turn to a a project that you've been inordinately proud of within your organization, which you can certainly talk about, pick one out and uh, to help folks understand what you bring to work. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've been super lucky in my career to work with leaders who want to change the world for the better. Um, started out my career at Apple, had the great, um, Luck to work for Steve Jobs really early in his career. Um, have worked on um, a lot of major formulations of companies and launching of ideas into the world. One interesting one that I think applies to so many of us is working with Joanne Jenkins at uh, AARP. As Joanne and her team really take on the topic of aging, especially in America where so many societal norms um, have so many negative stereotypes about aging. 
And as a 50 plus person, uh, this is very clear to me as I walk through my day. And what we've been working on with AARP is something Joanne likes to talk about as a narrative around disrupting aging, meaning for people to see that um, as you get older, you keep evolving. As you get older, you have more wisdom. As you get older, you can reimagine and reinvent yourself. And this narrative around disrupt aging is um, to help people understand that uh, uh, our 50s can be a time of great ascension rather than decline, depending on our mental model and depending on how we uh, parse out our time and our energy. And so this is a case where um, talking about that narrative, uh, helping Joanne capture that in a book, helping ARP in the way it tells stories about its most vibrant members, um, how they have relooked at their organization and ancillary business products. This entire chain is guided by challenging the primary narrative of America, that aging is a negative thing, and, and examining instead aging as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the privilege of doing this in government, societal issues, education, equity, diversity, as well as for the corporate realm and realm of commerce. Um, and I'm also doing it in my, in my personal life. I've also been uh, sharing stories about what's going on with me as well. Good. Yeah, and we will, we'll get to that um, for sure. As you describe what, what you are looking and endeavoring to accomplish in these various places, my, you know, the old Malcolm Gladwell line in his TED speech was, you know, all the world is, uh, to, to, to a worm in horseradish, all the world is horseradish. So as I'm in horseradish in my work, and, and, and it strikes me that you're in challenging the narratives, it's a conversation. Oh, comes absolutely. back to that, right? So absolutely. you you live in and out daily by minute in what must be what most people would call difficult conversations, hard conversations. I wrote down today for our sake, high stake conversations. Um, my, my bias and my selfishness to ask you is when you are getting ready to go in and do this high stakes work that you are retained for and um, people have great aspiration for you being there, certainly. How do you get ready for that? What's the preparation process? And I think that for me, getting ready is about doing the pre-work so that when you get into the conversation, you can be a thousand percent present and follow where the conversation goes. So some of the pre-work for me is what um, set of beliefs or what values are at stake in this conversation? Meaning, is this a truth-telling moment? Is this a chance to affirm what we both believe? Are we actually at odds with each other about something we believe? So trying to understand what is the moment we're actually in. And the second thing I often do is try to gather my thoughts and do a mind map of topics. Um, uh, Just trying to be a little bit thoughtful about what would be the best use of time? What are the topics? How do they relate to each other? If we get into a certain cul-de-sac of topics you know, that aren't doing either of us good in the conversation, how we might go to a new zone, that's just the mental um, preparation required to understand the domain of what we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing I try to do is really strike what I would call beautiful mm-hmm. questions, questions that 
um, call for a creative response, questions that call for an exploration of what we both don't know, uh, a question that encourages us to explore beyond my side or your side in it. By doing these three things, what, you know, what values are at play, uh, kind of a domain of conversation or a mind map, and then a set of beautiful questions, what I try to do is then come to the conversation and be fully present with almost no expectation of outcome, which sounds kind of mm. reversed from how most people, I think, right. believe how conversations work. I have no idea what is going to come out of your mouth next, and that's the grand mystery and mm-hmm. human connection of being here. Right. And rather than try to make sure that every point on this conversation map is touched upon, I'm more, no, 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 that's there to ensure that we always have something to talk about mm-hmm. should our conversation not hit its natural kind of velocity. So the, you know, the being fully present, I think, is the, is the much bigger lesson about how conversation happens, especially high stakes yeah. ones. So we met through a, a, a mutual friend who had told me of some work uh, you had done with with her. Uh, and uh, when I was reapproaching her in hopes of somehow um, getting someone like you on the podcast, uh, she said, I'm happy to ask, uh, but Keith has um, gone through some things lately uh, which may delay things. That's the setup for the yeah, next question, sure. but an even more intriguing setup, I hope, to the listener. Um, is is in trying to find out what you had gone through. I started, of course, I hit the internet and all the rest, and I came upon the concept where I'd, I'd love for you to jump in and tell us the fuller story, uh, the concept of the funeral playlist. I call it my funeral songs list, um, and I have it on my iPhone, and it's uh, the songs that I would love to be played at my funeral, which sounds perhaps a little bit morbid, um, it actually has a much more innocent genesis than that. It um, comes from Desert Island Discs, which is a great show out of the UK where they invite people to say, if you were you know, stuck on a desert island, what, what I believe it's eight songs would you be able to play? Um, and I did my funeral songs list uh, I don't know, three or four years ago, and I keep it on my iPhone. Um, I think what you're talking about in terms of what's going on in my personal life is that about a year, little over a year ago, I had a stroke, a base of the brain stroke, and it uh, paralyzed my face and stole a bunch of my speech. And uh, where the funeral songs list comes into play is I'm driving with my daughter about four months into my recovery. And uh, our rules here in California is that the uh, shotgun seat gets to DJ and Coco is DJing uh, using my iPhone as her, her bass. And she's like, Dad... This is so morbid. You have a, you have something called funeral songs. Like my funeral songs. Like I know you had a stroke, but th- this is just ridiculous. And I said, you know, Coco, um, I did it long before my stroke. And and what a funeral songs list is, it's um, how you want to live. Mm-hmm. And um, what are the songs that capture the joy with which you want to live? the courage with which you want to live, um, which songs capture the high moments, how do you want to be remembered? And uh, when you play your funeral songs list enough, um, it encourages you to live that actual life day to day. In a way, 
these things also provoke really profound conversations. So I, I encourage you to do your own funeral songs list. Um, you know, and uh, you can check mine out on Spotify under under my name, Keith Yamashita. Um, and it might inspire you to do yours. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that when you play your song list with others and talk about the songs, it brings up all sorts of things that matter to you mm-hmm. and often to the other person. Yeah, That allows you to talk about all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, um, I certainly know with my daughter Coco in the car, it led to all sorts of things about what matters and how I want to use the rest of my life and what does time mean. And uh, we don't get to be here for very long on this planet, it turns out. And um, that all came from music and speakers. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, wow. Those of you who have teenagers, I highly recommend do your your funeral songs list. Yeah. It, it it does reveal a, a great deal. Tell 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 me a little bit more uh, about what what I see on the internet as a result of this. You've really made something of obviously what was a horrific experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this concept of renewal. Um, can you talk sure. a little bit about that, vis-a-vis conversation or not? But what have you been? What has been created because mm. of this? You know, it's interesting. Um, we all all go through such um, profound change and suffering in our lives, and yet we often hide that from the world. Right? How are you? Oh, I'm fine. You know, what's up with you? Oh, nothing new. Um, what's going on with you? I'm on it. I'm busy. Um, in general, our conversations rarely dig as deep as there is possibility to dig. I found with my stroke, you know, so what I do for a living is I help people go through large scale change. And that could be CEOs and leaders, could be entire institutions or social movements. And my job is to help people uh, kind of emerge as a better version of themselves. And by nature of it, um, Expression, which uses your face, uh, beautiful questions and conversation, which uses your voice. So, in my stroke, I had neither of those things. So, when we, um, when the thing that makes us us is no longer available to us, who are we? And so, it's been a year of introspection and exploration and inquiry on the question of who am I? And what started to emerge for me is that we generally don't get much instruction about renewal. How do we renew ourselves? Uh, We have lots of instruction about ambition. We have lots of instruction about organization. We have lots of instruction about productivity. Um, but we have very little instruction about how does one renew oneself. Uh, when you hit something that the you cannot go above, you cannot go below, that the only way is through, and through is painful, what do you do on the other side of that? And so what I'm trying to do very simply, although it has not been easy for me, is share stories about that renewal more to give other people handholds and toeholds in their own life. And it's obviously cathartic to tell one's own story, and certainly I get a great benefit of making sense of my own life. But I think my real intention here is to say that moment of darkness, that moment of suffering, that moment of confusion, that moment of 
uh, how often we take on tasks because they validate who we are. That's how we become these really busy people. How often we do that merely to fill the blank void of nothingness or pain. Helping people recognize that so we each have more choice in how we live our lives. So whether it's something you you just outlined or um, I always I'm always challenging people I help with presentations to have the line toward the end. If there is one thing I want you to take away, is mm. is though you could magically do it. What's the one thing that you'd like people who you touch, who you interact with, who you converse with? to take away from your experience. I've always thought about these moments of crisis or tragedy or difficulty as anomalies. Um, and we, te- you know, we tend to think of like, oh, that person died, how anomalous. You know, that person failed in their job, how anomalous. This person was very successful and then they got taken out by the press, how anomalous. Um, my parents got sick, how anomalous. And um, I think the universal truth for me is that it is only through the ability to sit with darkness and sadness um, that you're able to find light on the other side. These things are not anomalous. This is life. Mm. And while that may be the most cliche learning, meaning um, I think we're all given this information when we uh, come into the planet, um, I think the sooner we realize it's actually through the suffering that we reclaim who we are as human beings, that we, and it's also the way we connect to other people. Mm. And so rather than run away from these moments, I think it's about sitting with them and using them to go a little bit more deeply into who you really want to be and who you are. Um, maybe that sounds very spiritual, yeah. um, but I think part of this journey for me has been that. Yep. And uh, when you sit with darkness and sadness in these moments, they lead to really lovely conversation because that's really where we connect as people. It's yep. not only in our happiness, but in the full experience of humanity. Yeah. Wow. There is a debate among the people that retain me for work, and I'm sure in, in your world, Uh, in a lot of different worlds, as to whether or not people can really change. Are people, uh, you know, what what is it that goes in to, at some point, somebody believing themselves that they're unchangeable? You know, I'm too old, or I'm too uh, set in my ways. There's a great debate going on that I fight and and participate in every day. when you hear about that, and I'm sure you deal with it, when people ask you, can we really change, um, what, what kind of conversation do you get into about that? Where do you come out on that debate? Yeah, I'm, um, I've seen so many people positively change on so many dimensions uh, throughout my entire career that I'm a very firm believer in human beings' capacity to become a better version of himself or herself. I'm um, very much on the side of what we believe permits us to become. Mm -hmm. So that's not to say it's easy, and it's not to say that we don't get stuck as humans. 
Um, but I think it starts with whether our beliefs limit us or expand us as human beings. So limiting beliefs can be anything. I am too big, too old, not athletic enough, not bright enough, not capable enough, not rich enough, not on it enough, not hardworking enough. I mean, there's any number of limiting beliefs that people hold. And I think positive evolution uh, comes from two things, looking inward at who am I really and, and uh, at my core, who am I at my you know, very best. And the second is having positive beliefs that are expansive. Um, I can do it. I can make it happen. I'm willing to do the work to do it. Um, and so a lot of the work we do is um, our narratives and our conversations reinforce beliefs um, or, or take them away. I mean, very, very simple, very mechanical example. I've worked with companies, very large companies that think of themselves as very slow growth companies, uh, yet they want to grow more profoundly. And by holding this belief, we cannot grow. They see the world in a way that is always small and incremental. Um, or if we've worked with other companies that felt they could not grow from ideas that came from within, that could only grow by acquiring other companies. These beliefs end up shaping what we're willing to see in the world. Um, if you only grow through acquisition, you only look at the world through a lens of acquisition. You know, th this goes into our personal lives too. We, you know, I'm a person who's not lovable. I'm a person who is too lazy. I'm a person, whatever. These then make us attuned to situations that only reinforce that belief. So I believe that all transformation starts with changing belief or evolving your belief towards more expansive beliefs and then formulating the narratives about them. Here's the narrative of me. Here's the narrative of us. Here's the narrative of our team. And what are the conversations we have about that? And um, when you align them, beliefs and narratives and stories and conversations, that gives people the most expansive stage on which they can develop as humans. Do you, therefore, because you enter with that belief, I would guess um, pretty, pretty confidently that you, uh, you help more than most find that place for themselves rather than high levels of um, disbelief, right? Well, I mean, yeah, what, what's you your... Know, it, um, yeah. Sometimes um, skepticism, disbelief, um, degradation of yourself is merely the passionate engagement because you actually care. Right, so I'll I'll take someone quite skeptical over someone who is uh, blasé about it, um, because I know the skeptic actually really cares about the outcome. So, to me, I think what I try to do is help people become more aware of what they believe, help people uh, formulate new beliefs around it, help them see that in the world, and then try to build the kind of rituals about living up to that belief. 
let me give you a very pragmatic example. So uh, at the time of my stroke last year, I was probably about 40 pounds overweight. I had uh, high cholesterol, uh, elevated blood pressure. After the stroke, my doctor said, look, you you got to exercise. you got to lose weight. If, if you want to live, you have to exercise, which is a pretty simple command, except for I had really negative beliefs about exercise formulated in my childhood. My dad was a very athletic human, lettered in every sport he ever played. And I was this kid who was never chosen for sports. And um, I remember very specifically this day where um, I'd been training in track. I must have been five or six years old. And I went to my very first track meet. And I got in the blocks ready to start. It was a long distance race. And there was the kid next to me in the next lane who was like five meters ahead of me and another kid ahead of him and another kid ahead of him. And no one had taught us about staggered starts. And so the gun goes off and I'm like, okay, I've already lost. Like there's no way I'm going to catch these other kids. And so I get frozen in the blocks, not able to move. Basically all the kids run around the track, they finish the race and I'm still stuck in the starting blocks. And I remember the absolute shame of my parents as they had to come down from the stands and basically claim me. I was the kid who just never started the race. And I remember that day sealing competition and athletics and masculinity all into a ball and saying, those things are not me. And for the next, you know, uh, 45 years, did everything I could to avoid situations that put me in a place of that kind of competition. Okay. This is an example of in order for me to simply work out, in order for me to do this, I had to confront that belief. And you'd say, it's so silly. Something happened to you at age five. And yet this is the way beliefs work. They start out really small. And we wrap them around it with either guilt or excuses and the belief gets bigger and it gets bigger and it comes to a point where you're not willing to do something um, because it would challenge that belief. Mm. And so it it is, uh, and then long story short, basically a really good friend of mine conned me into going to SoulCycle and... uh, uh, and I've been going ever since and I've lost 40 pounds and a bunch of things, but it took quite a lot to step into that studio to go the very first time. Why well, bring up this kind of silly, simple story, although it's profoundly affected my health, both first at negative and now positive, is that's the way all belief building works, is you have to get to the kernel of when did the belief start and you've got to unravel it, question it, inquire about it, and actively replace it with a different belief. It's true on every dimension. It's true professionally, it's true personally, it's true in our relationships. And all this baggage we hold from beliefs from you know our earliest parts of our childhood can so negatively affect us today. Mm-hmm. So, so put yourself in the place of an a executive or a member of a staff at a kind of organization that you and I would, would work uh, with. And they think need, things need to change. They have got beliefs and they have, they're, they're committed. But they are hitting uh, the, the headwinds of skepticism, resistance, fear, the, the, the things that really you know, short circuit these kinds of efforts. What's your encouragement slash advice to someone who believes that things in their organization can be better? Forget the size or anything. But what do you tell people who are up against it um, on how to persist? 
Yeah, uh, you cannot create what you do not yet see. So I, my advice is always help people envision that future. Tell me a story about that future. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Why is it different than today? Why is it worth fighting for? If you're with people who are very skeptical, also say a uh, story of the future. That's the negative story of the future. In contrast, at current course and trajectory with our declining market share, ethics under challenge, composition of our team, um, ability to satiate or not satiate our customers, play out the negative view too. Because any conversation that helps you envision the future, either one that you willingly want to create or one that you want to avoid, helps get the real questions on the table. Skepticism is not a negative thing. Skepticism is rooted in a different human experience of reality that says, I know if we attempt this, this is what will be hard. Or we have tried to do that before and it did not work. Or my hope has been this, but it has been so dashed, I'm reluctant to give it my heart. When you are able to envision the future, then you can create it. You can assemble all the elements to make it true. And the conversations you then have about that are the real ones, the ones that really matter. Yeah. What strikes me about today um, is it is an honor and a pleasure to see you return uh, to to obviously given what you've gone through. And thank you for sharing the path to that return. This is uh, hopefully going to help a lot of people. Hopefully helps you. It certainly helps me to be uh, selfish as we continue to crawl through the, the horseradish. Thanks, Keith. Thank you, Drew. That's an honor.